Our scripture reading today is from 1 Peter 1, 1 to 16, and it's on page 1176 from your Pew Bible, and I'll be reading from the Pew Bible. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, while you may have had to suffer grief in, in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even that though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to, to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray you will be with my brother Yuri during this time and let him reflect the gifts of study and meditation that you've given him, a gift of discernment and a gift of preaching. Help us to have ears to hear what the word of God has for us now and for the rest of 2022. Let us be faithful listeners and doers of the word. Lord, and let us reach to this calling that scripture gives us now that we can try to be holy as you see us, your children. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
Amen. Thank you very much, Neil. So in our current setup, it's a little bit awkward. Uh, we have people over here, we have people over here, and of course, many of you will be um, watching the service via our live stream, so I will try to split my time and direct my attention intentionally towards the camera, because I know a lot of you will be watching from home, but I'll also try to be addressing everybody here in the sanctuary as well. I'm not one for New Year's resolutions. The fact is most of our efforts at changing habits cold turkey by the strength of our own willpower fail. Especially right now, as most of us are grieving the losses of the last two years, we're just happy to have pulled ourselves through in some form or another. And most of the public messaging at the turn of this year and last have been about cutting yourself some slack, encouraging you to congratulate yourself on simply surviving. We've faced a challenge. Some would even call it a global trauma. Whatever it is, it has been at the very least disruptive to everyone. And that disruption is ongoing. It won't end as this new year starts. A new calendar year is, of course, just an arbitrary way to mark the passage of time. But still, this time of year, when we customarily take a bit of a breather, is a convenient moment to take stock of where we've been and to plan out where we want to go. While survival is certainly nothing to scoff at, as we slowly move through and eventually emerge from COVID, it's crucial to consider who we want to be. Not only as we come out of it, but also while we live through it. Whatever your response has been to the disruption we've paced, that we've faced up to this point, we've all been changed. Some of us for the better, some of us for the worse. Yet still, wherever you are today, if you have survived, you are still changing. You can still evaluate your successes and failures and strategies. You can adjust your mindset and resolve to try new paths, even if you falter or make progress in fits and starts. Believers in Jesus Christ should especially be attentive to these things, to what God has been doing in the pandemic, since we believe that he is sovereign. And though only God knows whether we are still in the middle of it or we are approaching the end of it, we must ask ourselves what he is calling us to right now. Today is a good day to ask what do you want from me in 2022, God? Pandemic or no pandemic? Well, Peter wrote his letter to scattered believers. Objectively speaking, they faced even greater challenges than we do. They were Christians actively persecuted for their faith 
in Christ. In fact, Peter suggests that the very name Christian was unwelcome, a term of abuse, since he encouraged them in chapter 4, verse 16 of 1 Peter, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Many of these people were slaves who'd been always oppressed by unsympathetic masters. Now they also faced ridicule and rejection from their peers since placing their trust in this weak foreign deity, this crucified Jew with the utterly implausible backstory. And they lived in a time and place when acceptance or rejection by their communities would easily mean the difference between relative comfort or misery, between life or death. And there was no reason to think that the situation would be improving for them anytime soon. So it's noteworthy that Peter does not in any way coddle his hearers. He doesn't offer trite words of encouragement, that they're all in this together, that they just need to hang in there a little bit more. He doesn't allow them to retreat either, to lay low and wait for a time when life will become easier. But he also doesn't tell them to just toughen up, to grit their teeth and defiantly pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. He knows that the trauma they are going through is real, that many of them won't survive it, and that they realistically can't do anything about that. But he's also not fatalistic about their situation. Rather, he starts right from the greeting. He starts by reminding them who they are, of the reality that they cannot see. True, they are scattered. Yes, they are isolated. Of course, they face uncertainty, undeniably. They experience ridicule, cruelty, and death. But yet, they are the elect. They are the chosen. They are those whom the holy God has set apart as his very own holy people, saints, each member of the holy trinity working together to effect their salvation. And he encourages them to take a long view. He trumpets the fact that they are the twice-born, born of human parents just like everyone else with an earthly heritage that will be forgotten as new cultures emerge and memories fade. But on the other hand, and unlike everyone else, they are reborn by faith to a glorious inheritance that will last forever. To the company of the holy ones whose lives hold eternal significance and whose names and legacies will never be forgotten by God. It's in the light of this new situation, this new birth, this salvation, this living hope long looked for, anticipated, often frustrated, yet now finally here. It is in this truth, the truth that changes everything, that they are to live their lives. 
In our passage that we're studying this morning, in verse 13, Peter tells them that they are to set their hope fully on the grace that is being brought in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, notice that I said, is being brought in the revelation, not will be brought or to be brought, if you're looking at the NAV. Most English translations place this phrase in verse 13 in the future tense. But the original highlights the ongoing nature of the unveiling of the grace that comes in Jesus. So this grace is not only a hope for the future when Christ ultimately comes again, though of course it includes that, but it is a present hope and a sure hope at that, since it is well founded by his work in the past. This hope is certain. It's now. It's not wishful thinking. It's grace that he's talking about. And this grace that he's talking about is available to God's people in the midst of the trials that they are facing today. And also in verse 13, Peter links the realization of this hope to the frame of mind that the elect are to cultivate, a mental readiness and clarity, alertness. We're going to keep going through this passage briefly. At the same time, in verse 14, Peter calls their attention to internal forces that tend to dull rather than sharpen this hope. Ignorance and lusts, which the NIV calls evil desires and the ESV calls passions, they use these words to make it clear that Peter is not only talking about an out-of-control sex drive, but the word is more literally translated as lust. Ignorance and lust, or passions, or evil desires, feed off of one another. As Peter says, our lusts belong to our ignorance, and ignorance grows when lust is allowed to have its way. It's a vicious cycle. Unrestrained desire mutes all other inclinations. And the less we're able to hear, the less we will feel like restraining ourselves. So the noisy feedback loop of lust and ignorance makes it impossible to attend to any other information. Lust, and remember we're not just talking about sex here, lust and ignorance drown out hope. But as Peter says, God's people are obedient children. That is, while we are certainly not perfect, the Spirit has sanctified us and continues to sanctify us. Way back in verse 2, he already said that this whole letter is written in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, that's a big word, sanctification. And that word, sanctification, means, among other things, that the Spirit is transforming us, giving us the desire to be like Jesus, giving us the desire to be obedient, even though we regularly fail. And one of the reasons we fail so often is because we tend to keep on doing what we're used to. By repetition, we clear and smooth and wear down a path. When we don't think about it, we end up sliding back easily into our ruts, the comfortable habits which, while we may be ashamed of them, feel good and familiar, even comforting, 
in moments of stress. And I'm sure you, like me, have fallen into those kinds of habits in a moment of stress in these last couple of years. But Peter says in verse 14, as obedient children, don't be conformed to those things. Don't be content to settle into the ways you've unconsciously inherited or that you've carved out for yourself by listening to your natural inclinations, the lusts that stupefy you and deaden you and prevent you from striving for anything higher. Instead, as obedient children, as the elect or chosen, as those whom the Father has foreknown, as those whom the Son has made right by his own sacrifice, as those whom the Spirit is transforming to be like the Son, verse 15, be holy in all your conduct. Be holy. That's the sermon. That's the lesson. In 2022, what do you want from me, God? And the answer from Scripture for this year, for every year, the answer from God's own mouth is, be holy. Be holy, for I am holy. But there's a problem there, isn't there? Holiness is a characteristic, in fact, the characteristic, Peter says, of God himself. He who called you is holy. But we humans don't know what holiness is. Not really, not completely, not naturally. We know that holiness involves perfection, but that too is next to impossible for flawed human beings to imagine. So we usually settle for the idea of purity, the absence of sin. In other words, purity is divined by a lack, the lack of contamination. But if that's all that holiness is, it becomes merely a blank, a negative space. And so we limit holiness to not doing all the things you might wish you could do but shouldn't. In other words, for many people, holiness is not doing this, not doing that, not doing this other thing. And not so long ago, many of you will remember, it was assumed that a holy person would not smoke, would not dance, would not swear, would not drink, would not watch movies, would not play at anything, especially not cards or sports on Sundays. Nowadays, we're slightly embarrassed by those quaint ideals. So what we think of as holy when we think of holiness at all, and it has become less and less of a priority in today's church, is a little different. Nowadays, a holy person doesn't listen to that kind of music or or watch that kind of movie or join in that kind of joking or, or do that with their girlfriend or boyfriend. But we feel free to enjoy things that go up to a certain line as long as we don't cross it. And we clutter our lives with stuff and activities because in themselves they appear innocent, or at least neutral, if the Bible doesn't talk about them. And we have proxy cultural outlets like Pure Flix instead of Netflix, radio stations that play music that caters to a Christian audience, Christian novels, Christian YouTube channels, all offering pure content, that is, tame versions of the things we wish we could take part in but can't or won't. 
It's mostly inoffensive, bland, and unchallenging. So we think we're safe from evil influences. Now, that's what comes of thinking of holiness as merely a kind of negative image, just the absence of sin. But it's obviously inadequate. At the same time, we know from what Peter says here and from countless other places in the Bible that holiness involves not just perfection, but perfect obedience to God's commands. And since God's commands involve many thou shalts, along with the thou shalt nots, in obedience, we have a basis for positive behaviors. In obedience, we're shown what to do, not just what to avoid. But anyone who's tried it knows that obeying all God's thou shalts is just as hard or harder than avoiding all the thou shalt nots. In any case, Peter begins verse 14 with the assumption that his hearers are obedient, as obedient children, he says. And then he commands them to be holy. So the two things are distinct. The command to be holy is not just another way of saying obey, although it must be said that disobedience to God is inherently unholy. Obedience, then, is an essential element of holiness, and yet it is distinct from it. So if we think that 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 is all there is to holiness, that holiness is a kind of dry, sterile existence, a cleaned up and sanitized version of the fallen world on the one hand, or an obsessive and exhaustive tending to the letter of the law on the other, we are utterly missing the point. And we know it's missing the point. Because the Pharisees, among others, have attempted, uh, attempted to achieve holiness in just that way. They had rules upon rules to ensure that they were obeying all of God's commands, both the positive ones and the negative ones, both the doing and the avoiding. But despite their dogged pursuit of external obedience to God's commands, Jesus himself considered their actions far from holy. Because he knew that inwardly they were full of evil. He called them whitewashed walls that look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Matthew 23, verse 27. That's an incredibly strong judgment for people who are doing their best to obey God's commands. But for Jesus, mere obedience, no matter how well-intentioned, no matter how hard we try, results in something like a horror show. This is the farthest thing from holiness. True holiness in its perfection, in its humble, divinely enabled obedience is beautiful. We just sang, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. This is what all the ancient Hebrew priests sang out, just as we heard read in that passage from Second Chronicle, First Chronicles at the beginning of our service. And that's just one of at least five places in the Old Testament that this phrase, the beauty of holiness, is used. 
The Bible repeatedly refers to holiness as something that is beautiful, something which inspires awe, something to marvel at. So, again, it's not something we can afford to ignore. It is the thing to which we are called as God's people. Sadly, in the last 50 years or more, many in the church, especially those like me, of a more creative bent, rightly reacting against an overly narrow understanding of holiness, but wrongly rejecting the centrality of the Bible and of biblical obedience, have been content to replace holiness with the idea of transcendence. Transcendence is the attempt to seek an expansive state of mind that gropes toward the divine, quote-unquote. But in reality, transcendence, in the popular understanding of the word anyways, is merely the brain imagining an encounter with God. Transcendence is merely the brain imagining an encounter with God. And most liberal church leaders and influencers are actually only too happy to admit that. Because while they like the idea of God, they actually prefer a God who stays far away. They prefer to be able to affirm the dominant cultural preoccupations as what God is saying to us today. But we can't do this. But we do have to question ourselves on it because it creeps into our church and into our theology as well. Do we believe, unlike liberal theologians, that God has revealed himself clearly? And do we believe, unlike them, that an authentic and ongoing interaction with a demanding God is both possible and desirable? Do we want to be holy? Or will we settle for a counterfeit, for a beautiful, albeit man-made, transcendence? Do we just want to put ourselves in situations where our brain will make us imagine an experience of the divine? Or do we want the real thing? Do we want God himself? Because while true holiness is beautiful, beauty is not holiness. The beauty of holiness is not often the kind of beauty that an artist or an art lover or a religious studies professor would appreciate. Beauty in itself is not holy. Beauty, even transcendent beauty, can be notoriously unholy, even evil, in fact. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.14. A simpler but similar and just as distorted way of thinking about holiness is just as common in conservative churches, especially in charismatic circles. People often start to think of holiness as a feeling or a sensation. And yes, true holiness will come with powerful feelings. But feelings, no matter how powerful, whether serenity or awe or joy or something else, are not in themselves holy. A holy feeling is not 
a reliable sign that a person or place or object is in fact holy. Remember, holiness is a characteristic, the characteristic, as Peter says, of God himself. He who called you is holy. So again, we humans don't know what holiness is, not really, and certainly not naturally. When we seek holiness through purity or biblical obedience, we may begin to approach it. But when we replace it with something which leaves us in control, like transcendence or beauty, or replace it with something we can easily manipulate, like emotions, we are utterly apart from holiness. Because holiness is, by definition, something utterly other than human. Holiness is something utterly apart from the created universe, in fact. Holiness is a word that we use to describe something indescribable. What is holy? God is holy. And likewise, the things of God are holy. So, truly holy people, saints, are people who are of God, truly godly people. But clearly, this is not only a passive state of being. Since Peter obviously expects us to do something, since he says, be holy in all your conduct. But it's almost funny because he makes this demand so casually, like we know exactly what he's talking about. It would be funny, that is, if it weren't so perplexing. Be holy, he says, as if that's something we can just layer on like a parka. Or as if it's a piece of ourselves that we can adjust like a lock of hair that's fallen over our eyes. He may as well say, put on your angel wings and your halo and turn your eyeballs inside out. Or he may as well say, thread a camel through the eye of a needle. Holiness is a word that means literally different in Hebrew, or set apart. Holiness is the truly other. It is remote from humanity. So we are utterly unable to be holy by ourselves. Holiness is entirely a work of God, a work of grace. But he says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Holiness is something that's entirely outside of us. Holiness is beyond anyone's natural capacity. It's not the kind of thing you can be born with an aptitude for. It's not the kind of thing you can fake. It's not the kind of thing you can wrap your mind around. Holiness must be more of God and less of you. Yet by a holy mystery of godly addition through human subtraction, more of God means more of you. Holiness means you as he intended you to be, set apart to enjoy him and to be enjoyed by him. Set apart to do his will. And that's the mysterious imperative, as well as the joyful purpose of holiness. The book of Hebrews echoes Peter, making much of the activity that Peter implies, saying, make every effort to be holy. For without holiness, no one can see the Lord. 
chapter 12, verse 14 of Hebrews. Make every effort to be holy. Without holiness, no one can see the Lord. If we want to see God, then we must be holy. If we want to live lives of joy, meaning, and purpose, we must be holy. If we want to accomplish anything of lasting significance, we must be holy. Paul writes to Timothy, If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. 2 Timothy 2.21 Holiness defines the creator God. His words sprout universes. So how could holiness be for us anything less than infinitely fertile, unfathomably fulfilling? Even in the uncertainty of a pandemic, even in the midst of restrictions and frustrations, we must ask again and again, what do you want from me, God? And his answer must be, as it always has been in every circumstance, to his set-apart godly people. I who called you am holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. You ask what I want from you, but what do you want from me this year, O man? What do you want from me this year, O woman? I can make you holy. I will make you holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy, and you are my people. Holiness is of God. Holiness is from God, and God longs to pour out his holiness on us. So while I said a moment ago that Peter's exhortation is impossibly perplexing, and it is, yet he also points us along a path, God's path, which we must travel as holy people to be holy people. God's people live holy lives of alert obedience and beautiful certainty. And by God's own enabling, we must step lightly along and into God's own holiness. God's people live holy lives of alert obedience and beautiful certainty. But how? How do we do this? First is preparation. Recognizing what has already been done for us. That's the therefore. We're going to go back over our passage. The therefore at the beginning of the passage in verse 13. Therefore, through which Peter is referring to the whole glorious work of redemption by the Holy Trinity. Our election to holiness according to the foreknowledge of the Father. Verse 2. The salvation that is ours through the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories of his resurrection and ascension. Verse 11 and the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, verse 2 again. Remember, sanctification literally meaning the process of being made holy. Next in the way of preparation for holiness is the state of mind we are to cultivate, which I referred to earlier. 
We are, Peter says, to prepare our minds for action. In other words, holiness does not involve a lot of sitting around. It's not isolating yourself in a tower or meditating on a mountaintop, but living and looking for ways to learn and love and serve. That said, it's also about getting enough rest so that you can be ready for action with a minimum of brain fog. Likewise, we are to keep our minds sober, Peter says. In other words, to the extent that we're able, we must prevent our minds from being disabled or distracted. I'll go on a bit of a rabbit trail, because obviously this then rules out consuming anything that even slightly impairs you. There may not be many people listening to this sermon who are particularly tempted by things like alcohol or other drugs, but I think it bears mentioning because cannabis was recently legalized and its use is becoming culturally acceptable. Our kids especially will know and hear repeatedly from others that the Bible doesn't say anything specific about smoking or vaping or consuming pot. And if they have that thin understanding of holiness as just the absence of certain activities, they may conclude that if it's not illegal, then it's okay in moderation. And while many of us in the church have a lot of anecdotal knowledge about the dangers of alcohol and the misery it brings, cannabis is something many of us have far less personal experience with. We've been accustomed to just telling our kids and ourselves that it's against the law, so we have far fewer well-developed arguments why drug use of any kind should be avoided. The biggest reason Christians should not do drugs, even before the more tangible physical and social risks, which, as we all know, are considerable, is that drug use has always been about manufacturing a fake experience of God. The transcendence I mentioned earlier. Drugs stimulate the brain to bring about an altered state of consciousness. That state makes it seem to you like you are having an encounter with something beyond the mundane physical world. But it is, quite literally, all happening within the confines of your seemingly enhanced but actually impaired, scrambled, and addled mind. So if we want to be a holy people, if we want to truly release our selfish notions and be more like Jesus, we must do so in our right minds. We must genuinely seek him, not an imagined experience of the divine. God graciously allows us to perceive him through the mind that he has given us. We're not to try to satisfy our longings for him with any counterfeit. And so, we also must be on the lookout for the things in our lives which tend to stand in for God. Just as surely as chemicals can deceive us into thinking we've had an encounter with him, idols mask our hunger for the true God in the first place. And as our desire for God is, is replaced with a desire for our idols, it becomes nearly impossible to grow in holiness, since holiness is from God and God alone. 
So as we stand at the threshold of the year, wanting to grow in holiness, part of the preparation will be to ask God to reveal to us our idols, to confess them, to relinquish them, to ask him to take them away. We must consider what the things are in our lives that keep us from wanting more of God, the things that preoccupy us, that take up more of our time and our thoughts than they ought to, the things that we look to for meaning, purpose, and security apart from God himself. John Calvin wrote that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. So this is something that we all must do and that we all face. Because anything can be an, be an idol. Idols can be people. Idols can be organizations. Idols can be activities. Idols can be things. Idols can be aspirations. Idols can be jobs. Idols can be disciplines. Idols can be ideas, philosophies, or strategies. We have to ask God to reveal our idols, to confess them, to relinquish them, and ask him to take them away. So all this, all this I've been talking about, meditation on what God has done to save us, cultivating mental readiness and sobriety, avoiding things that will distract and disable us, and identifying and confessing idols that will drain our desire for God, all this is the work of preparation for practical and personal holiness. And so, all these things having been considered, Peter has laid the groundwork finally to give us his first command of the book. Set your hope fully on the grace that is being brought to you at or in the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the activity that we have prepared ourselves for. It's certainly an unusual way to describe an activity. Hope doesn't exactly sound active, but that's because our hope must be set, as Peter says, on grace, not on our own efforts. That grace is ours in the person of Jesus, the only man who has ever been holy through and through. And it is a hope that can be full and active because it is beautifully certain. Grace is being brought to us, present tense. Christian hope, holy hope, saintly hope is active. It doesn't sit around and worry as if there were some doubt as to the meaning of Christ's revealing. No, we are actively looking to Jesus, actively looking to Jesus as he has been revealed in the past, as he is being revealed in the present, and as he will be revealed anew in the future. In other words, and we're getting close to the end now, full of the hope of his grace, we follow his example in life and death, praying and worshiping in community and by ourselves, and considering others better than ourselves, we serve them, putting their needs first and ours last. Full of the hope of his grace, we walk in the truth he taught. We immerse ourselves in the scriptures in the light of his prophetic interpretation of them. We seek to be taught and to follow the example of our spiritual mentors 
as disciples. That's what catechism is, by the way. <laughs> Full of the hope of his grace, we rely on Jesus' saving work on the cross to put our self-serving sin to death. And we trust in the power of his resurrection to make us alive. Full of the hope of his grace, we are sanctified. Remember, we, that means we are being made holy. We are saints. We look with the eyes of his spirit to see how he is at work in the present. How he's at work in our lives. How he's at work in our world. How he has been at work throughout all of history as well. Through people, through those who are weak and oppressed as much as through kings and conquerors. Through calamities, through plagues and shortages, pandemics, as much as through health and wholeness. We fix our sights full of the hope of Jesus' grace on his coming again in glory to judge, to condemn, and to pardon. First Chronicles 16 again. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor or the beauty of holiness. Resolve then in 2022 to do all you can to live a holy life of alert obedience and beautiful certainty, to step lightly into God's own holiness, fast and pray, study and memorize his word. Pursue discipling relationships. Learn the catechism. Be in active fellowship with his people in our church building and elsewhere. Serve the Lord and others. And worship the Lord in singing, as the psalm says in Second Chronicles. Chronicles. Worship the Lord in singing in order that in all things you may worship him in the beauty of holiness, his holiness, and also increasingly, mysteriously, joyfully, our own. Let's pray together. Lord, as an old prayer says, most people seem to live for themselves without much regard for your glory or for the good of others. Most earnestly desire and eagerly, eagerly pursue riches, honors, pleasures in this life as if wealth or greatness and laughs 
could make their immortal souls happy. But what false dreams these are. How miserable will they be who die in them? Because all our happiness consists in loving you and in being holy as you are holy. Cause us to worship you in the beauty of holiness. Amen. Thank you for joining us here in the sanctuary and on our live stream this morning. As a benediction, I'd like to offer that passage from Isaiah that I mentioned to the kids earlier. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Let's pray. Lord, we are a people of unclean lips and we live among a people of unclean lips. And yet, you have cleansed us. You have redeemed us. You have made, made us your very own chosen people. And you call us to gird up our minds for action. You call us to be sober-minded. You call us to set our hope fully on the grace that is being brought to us in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Make us your obedient children, Lord. Take away our ignorance and our lusts. And Lord, make us holy as you are holy this year. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.